Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 15. We're going to read Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. We don't do this very often when we read scripture, but we will this morning. I would like to invite you in honor of God and his word to stand while I read it, please. If you would, let's uh, stand. God speaks to us through his word, so I'll read and um, we'll stand together. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word. May he add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. You may be seated. This is a passage of scripture that you could compare maybe to a sunburn. You know what that's like. You go to the beach, and you don't put enough sunscreen on, and the next day, you're walking around kind of tender, kind of gingerly, and a friend who doesn't know where you were comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going, and slaps you on the back, and you go, oh. Oh, you wince and you moan because it hurts. There are some passages like that in the Bible that we read that way that sting a little bit, either because of their content or because of the tone with which they address it. Here in this passage, it's the, the content, the topic that stings a little bit. This is the most important passage in all of the Bible when it comes to the issue of religious liberty. Now, uh, uh, religious liberty in our country is uh, in, encoded in our First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. There it is. It's our first freedom. It's written down, but that does not mean that it is eternally secure. Albert Moeller, who's done a lot of writing and reading and thinking about religious liberty, has noted in the last several years most newspapers, when they uh, p- talk about religious liberty, put it in quotation marks as if, as if it's, a, you know, some people say religious liberty, or it's like a figment of our imagination, something that we're pretending exists, you know, religious liberty. Or he also uh, points out the tendency that some of our political leaders have to talk not about freedom of religion, but freedom of worship. You may do what you want on Sundays in your congregation, but from Monday through Saturday, you belong to us. You don't have freedom of religion. You have freedom of worship. And you're familiar with some of the uh, news stories 
Baronel Stutzman, the florist from Washington, who, according to her biblical convictions about marriage, could not in good conscience make a floral arrangement for a same-sex marriage, was sued. Uh, Jack Phillips has been sued twice because he follows his Christian convictions in his cake-baking business. He won't make a custom wedding cake for a same-sex marriage. Uh, He was sued and won that case. Then he refused to make a custom cake celebrating a gender transition, and that case is now in court. Jack Phillips doesn't make Halloween cakes, according to his convictions. Suppose, uh, uh, perhaps there are a group of ghosts and goblins lying up, lining up to sue him over that, too. Uh, Andrew Walker is another uh, um, uh, man who has studied uh, religious liberty in America. In fact, he just released a book about it. And he says that he thinks that the next step is going to be lawsuits over private Christian schools and homeschooling. We've already battled those out in the courts. He says it's coming back. Now, our focus is on religious liberty and vaccine mandates. Are there uh, legitimate religious exemptions for masks or vaccine mandates? Can the government close your church... And keep your church from gathering for worship during a pandemic. Uh, let us give credit where credit is due. The Wolf administration handled this issue differently than other states and other municipalities did when they issued their closure orders at the height of the pandemic. They were mandatory for businesses. They were requests, suggestions, uh, uh, asks. They were asking churches and religious uh, houses of worship to do the same but it was not a mandate in the way it was for businesses and in the way it was for other uh, congregations in other states. So credit to the Wolf administration when credit is due. Today's a good day for me to make all of you a little bit mad. (laughs) Um, If nothing else, I want to give you something to talk about at lunch, right? I have two concerns as we come to this passage. My first concern is that I want to say what the scripture says and not what else is in my mind concerning these issues. I have views as a citizen about these issues. I hope my views are informed by the scripture, but I recognize in our church, we stand for God's word, not my word. So listen carefully to what I say. Is this from the text? My other concern actually is, uh, uh, transcends just today. It's a concern that I have for the next three weeks. We're going to be in, uh, following Jesus through some discussion about some controversial issues. There's going to be arguments that are happening here. And, and I, I don't want to focus so much on the issues at hand that we miss why Matthew has recorded them for us in the first place. What's Matthew getting at by telling us about these contentious conversations? These are conversations that that are going to move us closer to the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. This is not a polite debating society. This is war. And I I want us to keep our mind on that focus, uh, uh, um, focus our mind on that context. And that's actually where we're going to begin with that broader context. What I want to do to organize our thoughts, I want to share with you three commands that emerge from the text. The first one is related to all of chapter 22. The second and third are more specific to this text. The first one is one that you'll have to keep in mind for the next three weeks, and the second and third are for today. So here they are. Command number one, don't try to outsmart Jesus. 
Don't try to outsmart Jesus. That's the main message of, of, of Matthew chapter 22. Uh, maybe you don't have this problem in trying to outsmart Jesus. Let, let's, let's think about that. Starting in verse 15 of the text and continuing all the way through the end of the chapter, there are a series of questions, four of them. Three of them are asked of Jesus by the religious leaders, and the fourth one is asked by Jesus. And verse 15 tells us what the religious leaders were trying to do in asking their questions. Verse 15 says, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Verse 18, Jesus describes what they're trying to do. In my translation, it's the same word. In the original, it's not. But verse 18, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me, to tempt me, to test me? Jesus uses a word that Matthew uses elsewhere to describe satanic opposition. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to make him look foolish. That'll be more important even next week. They're trying to make him look corrupt, cowardly. They're trying to make him look like he's a danger to Roman rule because of the positions that he has. And at every point in these questions and answers, Jesus slips through their trap. He turns it back on them. They're left speechless. Actually, verse 22 says, they're amazed. Wow. We didn't think he'd say that. Wow. You don't try to outsmart Jesus. Matthew wants you to see the intensifying conflict here. These religious leaders are frustrated men who take desperate measures. They can't outsmart Jesus. They can't ruin Jesus' reputation. So they're going to plot to murder him. That's what they're going to do. The other thing that you should notice here is this is part of Matthew's revelation of the person and work of Jesus. We've been reading miracle accounts. Matthew writes about the miracles that Jesus does. And, and every time he does one, we think to ourselves, look at that power and that compassion in the miracles that he does. That's awesome. Jesus' power and his compassion. Here in chapter 22, when we see him dodging these questions and answering them so brilliantly, we see his, his brilliance, his intellect. In him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God don't try to outsmart Jesus because you can't. It's helpful to remember that because it will help us as we approach the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember how Matthew ends. Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. How are they supposed to make disciples? By teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And this section of scripture reminds us that the commands are not merely an expression of Jesus' authority. They are that. He has authority, but they're not merely the expression of a, of a powerful, oppressive deity who's set on getting his way. Jesus' commands come from his deep understanding and his abiding love. He's, he's not on a power trip when he tells us to do something. He's not playing Simon Says with his followers. How long has it been since you've played Simon Says? Remember Simon Says? One person, a boy or girl, is picked to be Simon, and, and they give commands, a series of commands, and as fast as they can, and they're nonsense commands. Simon Says, touch your ears. Simon Says, touch your nose. Simon Says, touch your toes. And, and keep going with these nonsense commands, all in an effort to trick you, to trip you up. 
Hmm. Jesus is not doing that with his commands. They come from a deep understanding of the way that the world works. They come from a deep understanding of who you are and who God has called you to be in the world that he made. That's why John can say in 1 John 5, 3, in fact, this is love for God uh, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They come from his deep understanding and his abiding love. I had a professor in seminary. He was brilliant when it comes to the Greek New Testament. His name was Harold Honer. And he uh, also gave some good parenting advice that I heard from a friend that came from Dr. Honer. He said, say yes as often as possible. As a parent, say yes as often as possible. There will be lots of times when you'll say no, when you have to say no, but say yes as often as possible because the temptation to say no without actually thinking about it, the temptation to say no because what your children are asking is inconvenient or it's going to be messy or it's going to ruin your plans or disrupt your plans in some way. The temptation to say no just thoughtlessly, no, 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 no. It's so great. Remind yourself, say yes as often as possible. You have to say no at, at, at many points in time. But you are most like Jesus when your no's come from a deep understanding and an abiding love. And the older your kids get, the more important it is that you explain that deep understanding, that abiding love. Whatever excuses you have for saying no to Jesus' commands, whatever excuses they are, they cannot be because Jesus does not understand you or the situation that you're in. They're good Let's think for a minute about the specifics of their attempt. So verse 15 says, the Pharisees get together and they plot, they make a plan to trap Jesus. And they're going to ask him a question about taxes. And then they send their disciples and the Herodians to Jerusalem where Jesus is teaching to ask him this question. My translation says that the question in verse 17 is about the imperial tax. Your translation might say just taxes, or it might say the poll tax. Now, in our country, a poll tax is a tax you pay at the polls to vote. That's not what this is. They didn't vote in Rome. (laughs) This is a tax that was levied against non-Romans, and it was based upon your, uh, the census. And uh, it was a very unpopular tax. It was a hated tax for a number of reasons. It was hated in, in part because unlike customs duties or like we could say sales tax, there's no immediate benefit that's associated with those taxes. So no one likes to pay sales tax, but when you go to the store and you uh, buy something and you pay sales tax, at least you leave with that thing, that book you bought. At least you you leave with the book or at least you leave with a hammer. You got something to to show for it, even though some of your money's now gone to Pennsylvania and some of it's gone to Lancaster County. At least least you got something, right? That's not the way it is with this tax. You just give the money and off it goes to Rome. It was hated because this tax is a reminder of their subjugation to the Roman Empire. There were some Pharisees who refused to acknowledge that the Romans ruled in Palestine. In fact, they thought it was their biblical uh, responsibility to deny Rome's headship. Look at Deuteronomy 17.15. This is a passage about kings, uh, the kings in Israel. And it says, Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. 
And there are some Jews who thought that paying this tax was to dishonor God and dishonor Deuteronomy 17. So they hated this tax. The final reason they hated it is because of the special coin that was used to pay it. Here's a picture of it, this coin. This is from the Roman error, era. Error. It was it's Freudian. It was uh, from the Roman era, and uh, here it is. They minted this coin specifically for paying this tax, and it has on it an image of Caesar Tiberius there on the left. That's Caesar Tiberius, and then his mother is on the back. Quite a uh, wonderful image of his mother there, and it says it says Caesar a uh, Tiberius Caesar worshipful son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, it says Pontifex Maximus, high priest. This is idolatry. It's idolatry because you've, you've got the image of this person in your, this, this is how the Jews would view this. You're carrying around this image in your pocket and the image, the, the inscription credits him with divinity. This is idolatry to pay this tax. So they hate it. And if Jesus says to pay it, if he says you should pay it, some of his Jewish followers are going to turn on him. And if he says not to pay it, well, there's Herodians that are right there. The Herodians and the Pharisees don't get along very much, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and the Herodians are here. We don't know much about the Herodians. Our guess is, based on their name, that they're fans of the authority of the Herod family, and the Herod's rule in Palestine at the permission of Rome. So the Herodians are in favor of the tax. Oh, they come to Jesus and they try to butter him up. They try to back him into a corner with his own integrity. You're, you always speak the truth. You always teach the, the truth of God. Verse 16 says, you, you don't care what people think. And you say what's true no matter what. So tricky, tricky. Jesus knows what they're about. Verse 18, you hypocrites, you don't really want to know the answer to this question. You're just trying to trick me. You can't outsmart Jesus. Obey him. This is what we do with his commands. We obey him because we recognize that behind those commands is an unstoppable, insightful, agile intellect. He knows so much more about how life works than you do. Don't try to outsmart Jesus. Command Number two, let's see what Jesus knows about paying taxes and religious liberty. Command number two, honor the state. Honor the state. Now, I, it, Jesus answers their question in the affirmative. Yes, pay your taxes to Caesar. But he does it in such a way that leaves them utterly astonished. His logic has startling implications. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. He asks for a coin. Give me the coin. So they bring a coin to him. And he's, who's this? This is Caesar. This is Caesar's coin. Give Caesar what's his. Give back to Caesar what's his. It's his, give it back. Jesus here is commending a basic orientation of honor toward the state. Under God, the government has specific duties. And in response, we pay taxes to support that work. In honor and recognition of the, the commission they have from God, we pay taxes to honor uh, God and in recognition of the work that the government is commissioned by God to do. Now, Paul expands on this in Romans 13, and I'm going to show you Romans 13, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it to you. In a minute, we're going to turn to 1 Peter 2, but we're going to start by looking at Romans 13, verse 1. Look what it says. 
Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that have established have, that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of from fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and you will be commended. Now in verse four, we get to verse four, and here is a specific purpose of government. Verse four, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. That word servant there is the word we translate sometimes deacon, diakonia, servant. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. There's the commission. According to Romans 13, what's the government supposed to do? They are agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why, also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Someone has got to pay their salary. They can't earn a living in a traditional occupation because they give themselves full time to governing. So pay taxes to help them, to have them earn a living. Now verse seven is a challenge at times. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, fine. If revenue, then revenue, fine. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay. In light of the commission that they have, uh, 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 the state, the government, is worthy of all of these things in verse 7. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. All of them. Is Paul out of his mind? Does he not know about the corruption in the state? the incompetence? Come on, Paul. I want to answer that question by taking you to 1 Peter chapter 2. So take your Bibles, keep your fingers in Matthew 18. We'll come back to this. But turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to spend a, a good bit of time here, and I want to think about this question. Do the apostles know what they're about? Do they know what they're doing when they're commanding us to honor the state, when they're commanding us to give respect, do, do they really understand the situation? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter 2 is at the end of your Bible. 1 Peter is very close to the end. If you're in Revelation, turn left. If you're in Concordance, the Concordance, turn left. If you found the maps, good for you. They should be in your Bible. But 1 Peter is to the left. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves... Peter sounds very much like Paul here. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. There's the purpose for the government. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves." He's hinting here what he's going to make clear in the next section, that following Christ for some of them is going to be costly. It, it is costly. First Peter talks about the abuse that some of them have received. Verse 17, 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor, there's that word again, the emperor. Now, what, what Peter does from here on out, he sounds very much like Paul up to this point in time. What Peter's going to do, starting in verse 18, is he's going to talk to two more groups of people that are responsible to submit. He's addressed all of us, all of you submit to the governing authorities. Then in verse 18, he's going to talk to slaves. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to address wives and their husbands. The slaves part is challenging. Remember, we're after, I'm trying to answer this question. Do the apostles know what they're talking about when they command us to respect, to honor, to submit to these governing authorities? What does Paul, uh, Peter say here about corrupt masters? Verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure the beating, this is commendable before God. Wow. Peter, do you know what you're about when you command us to submit? Peter, Peter knows what it's about. He, he, knows, he knows that submission sometimes involves suffering. He's not endorsing it. He's not approving of it. He doesn't address the masters in this passage, but when the Bible does address masters, it tells them not to abuse their slaves. He's, there are some people who think that, that Peter here, his commands about suffering and submission means that if you're in a situation of submission that you're suffering, that you should stay there. That's not what Peter's saying. For slaves, in 1 Corinthians 7, he, uh, Paul says, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. So he, he's not commending remaining in that suffering position, but he's saying there are times when you will have to remain. And if you do, here's how to endure it. If you're a slave, you may have to endure it under your master. If you're a citizen, you may at times endure this under your government. Do the apostles understand what they're about when they tell us to submit? They do. Submission to human authority always includes risk. It's frightening to entrust yourself to someone else. These beautiful blushing brides that march down the aisle, they're so happy, they should be afraid a little bit. It's frightening to entrust yourself into the care of someone else. The Bible warns those who are in authority uh, about misusing their authority. It's interesting, in, in this passage, so Peter addresses citizens under a government, and then slaves under masters, and then wives under husbands. Notice he does not address the government, and he does not address masters, but in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, he does talk 
to husbands. I think Paul, uh, Peter is trying to address husbands here in this way because the idea that a husband, a follower of Jesus who is a husband who would misuse his authority and who would abuse his wife is unthinkable to Peter. So he, he addresses husbands to say, look, not you, not you. Uh, the government may be corrupt and inept and abusive and, and masters may be uh, corrupt and abusive. Husbands who follow Jesus, never. That's I, th I think that's what he's thinking here. But the Bible tells us in situations where we cannot escape, the Bible tells us about this orientation of submission. And verse 19, it says, because why do we do this? Because we're conscious of God. Conscious of God. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes when it comes to religious liberty, we tell those in authority over us, I can't uh, obey you because I'm conscious of God. Peter says being conscious of God should lead to submission here. The apostles know, they know what they're about. They know what they're about when they speak about our responsibility to pay taxes and to honor the state. Now, it's interesting as we think about this here, what else is motivating followers of Jesus? Peter um, talks about suffering, unjust suffering. And then he says in verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Why submit? Consciousness of God, in honor of God, I submit. And why else? Because Christ has left us an example, suffering unjustly himself. Sometimes, well, in the book of Job, chapter 10, Job is suffering and he looks to heaven and he says to God, do you have human eyes? Do you have human skin? Sure would be nice, Job says. Sure would be nice to be God in heaven and not have to suffer here on earth and not know what suffering here on earth is like. And, and then Jesus comes. It's kind, isn't it, when God in his providence brings someone into your life in a moment of suffering who can say to you, you know, I understand. I see the suffering that you're enduring and I understand that suffering because I've, I've been there. And here's the Lord Jesus, Peter says, coming to suffering people. And he says, I see your suffering and, and I understand it because I've, I've been through it. Well, what's interesting even more so Peter, like Paul, can't talk about the Lord Jesus without going to the cross and thinking about the cross. And, and he gives this example here at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2 of the worst case of unjust suffering, the greatest example of government corruption ever, ever. And he, he says, look what God did in the process of Christ's submission, Christ's suffering. Verse 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or cross, your translation might say, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, the corruption that is out there in the government that we want to complain about is not just corruption that's out there. There's an internal, it's a problem that's in here too. Those politicians, they're sinners just like me. And if God is going to judge them, Justly, then, he must judge me too. But Christ is our sin bearer who suffered on the cross the penalty we deserve. He writes from Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. One wonders if he's thinking about the wounds on a slave's back here. 
Jesus and suffered and died so that you might be rescued from your own sin. And in doing so, he set an example to us of suffering in submission. So do the apostles know what they're talking about? Yeah, they, they, they do. Honor the state. Thus far, I have not been very kind to the government. Let me just for a minute be kind, shall I? Shall we? Shall me? Shall me? That's not right. I'm going to. I am thankful this morning. I give thanks to God for the Millersville Borough Council that maintains the roads in the, the village of Millersville, the borough of Millersville, because I drive on those roads all the time. And I'm thankful that they put up speed limit signs and traffic signals and lane, they paint lanes so that I and my fellow citizens can make it out around town in decency and in order. I'm thankful for the Millersville Borough Council. I'm thankful for the Manor Township Police Department and the work that they do. They keep our buildings safe. I know that in part because a couple of times in the years that I have been here, I've gotten a call in the middle of the night. It's a Millersville Police Department, uh, Millersville Police Officer, who's gone around and checked all of the doors of our building to make sure they're all locked. And if they find one that's not locked, they call me to come up and lock, and they wait for me to come. You can't do one of those, I'll get to it and go back to sleep. No, you got to come up here and lock it because they're waiting for you to come. And I'm not grateful at 2.30 in the morning, but usually I am eventually thankful. <laughs> I'm thankful that they arrest drug dealers in Manor Township. And I'm grateful that they arrest thieves. Our justice system isn't perfect, but I'm grateful for the efforts they make. I'm thankful for the state of Pennsylvania because the turnpike is a great road if you want to get from east to west in Pennsylvania. It works really well, better than other routes you could take. And I'm thankful for our state parks that I enjoy visiting. I'm thankful for the federal government. I'm thankful for Medicaid. I know Medicaid could be run better. I'm sure Medicaid could be run better. I have no expectations that the problems of Medicaid are ever going to be fixed in my lifetime. But there are people who are dependent upon that for medical help, and I'm grateful for that program. I'm thankful for the United States Navy that sails around Africa and, and suppresses piracy. I'm thankful for soldiers and Marines who make plans to break up terrorist training camps. It's rough justice. I understand war is always rough justice, but I am grateful for those men and women who are involved in that task. Honor the state, Jesus says. Now here's command number three. Command number three in this passage. Honor God. Honor God. Jesus, going back to Matthew 18, Jesus does not allow us to, ling uh, Matthew 22, rather, sorry. Jesus does not allow us to linger very much over what we owe the creator, uh, Caesar, because he immediately turns to God. And, and doing so, he speaks to the limits of governmental power. There is a higher authority. The image language is helpful. Uh, whose image is this on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, give it back to him. Give it to Caesar. Uh, but give to God what is God's. Where's God's image? Huh. You, you are made in God's image. This is, this is Caesar's image. Give it back to him. You're God's image. Give God what he is due as God. There is a higher authority than the state. This is the first time in history that someone has suggested, um, scholars have noticed this, historians have noticed this, biblical scholars, this is the first time in history we have a record of anybody suggesting that the state and religion should be separated. 
In all other ancient cultures up to this point in time, they are united. The, uh, the king of the country has a special relationship with God. He is sometimes worshipped as God, as Caesar was and, and Pharaoh. Uh, the, the, the religion and state are together here. Even in ancient Israel, under the Hebrew scriptures, the king had a special relationship with God. And to honor the king, uh, honoring the king was a, a part of honoring God. And here for the first time, Jesus says, no, there is a distinction. There are distinct realms of authority between the state and God's authority. It's a distinction that is embedded in the First Amendment that I read, uh, and we talk about it sometimes as liberty of conscience. There are commands that the state does not have the authority to issue, despite the fact that some of our political leaders forget about that. Um, Here's the way it's often expressed. Here's some of the ways that this religious liberty is often expressed. A state may not command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. It's outside of their realm of authority to command you to do what God forbids you to do or forbid you from doing what God commands you to do. That's a helpful way, I think, to remember that. Our church is a tax-exempt organization. We don't pay taxes on our property. We don't pay sales taxes. And you'll hear the common notion of tax-exempt status is you're tax-exempt because the, the people, the government has determined that you provide a valuable service. So we're going we're gonna to help you out a little bit by not charging you taxes. That is not why the church is a tax-exempt organization. The, ta- the church is a tax-exempt organization because the money that you have given, you have given in worship as an act to God, and it is God's money, and the state may not take God's money. Religious liberty in our country is our first freedom, and it is increasingly under suspicion. It's not real. It's it's not sincere. You're, you're not doing what you're doing because of your sincere religious belief. You're using it as a cover for something else. Baron L. Stutzman doesn't have biblical convictions about marriage. She has animus. She doesn't like gay people. That's, that's her problem. Or this is the history that you'll hear behind the Christian school movement. The Christian school movement uh, really was uh, born and flourished in significant ways in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. This is the history that you will hear, and it's not true, but this is the history that you'll hear. You'll hear that uh, Christian schools were started because, uh, not, not because parents were, uh, wanted to integrate the Bible in the education of their children, or not because they were concerned about rising secularism in the schools. You'll hear Christian schools were started primarily by white parents in the South who wanted to keep their children in segregated schools. The federal government was segregating schools in the South, so they started Christian schools in order to keep their white kids in white schools. That's the history you'll hear. It's not true. Um, It's the default of historians in general to look back at history and see people with sincere religious belief and and assume they're not practicing that because of their sincere religious belief. They're practicing that because some other nefarious reason. So I listened to this week an interview about a woman who just wrote a book about a a particular evangelical woman in the United States, not a famous woman by a stretch of the imagination, but in the 1800s, she was engaged to someone and she broke off the engagement. And there was a 
kerfuffle in the church about whether or not she could and how she could and how she did it and if it was okay. And, and the, the default of historians to, is to look back at that situation and say, those evangelicals did not say what they said because uh, of their sincere belief about the uh, marriage from the Bible. They said and did what they did because they want power and they're going to keep power. So religious liberty. Now, Let's for a minute, as we finish here, talk about religious liberty and pandemics. Careful thinking about religious liberty and pandemics is really hard because the issues have been confused by a lot of misinformation from both sides of the debate. There's been missteps, there's been hypocrisy, there's been um, deception. This, This is this is a developing science pandemic. So what COVID-19 is, we're seeing science unfold before our eyes and it's, it, it changes, it makes things hard to, to navigate, difficult. Here's the question. Does the government have a role to play in issuing public orders that mitigate the spread of a deadly disease? Can the government tell you to stay home in order to mitigate a deadly disease? Can the government tell you not to gather together with brothers and sisters to worship in a building to mitigate the spread of a disease. Well, for hundreds of years, followers of Jesus have said yes in answer to that question. As long as it is for a specific purpose and for a specific period of time, governments, it's, it's part of the government's work to mitigate the spread of a deadly disease by canceling public meetings, even the gathering of a church. Some of you remember perhaps news stories about super spreader events. Some church gatherings were super spreader events. Um, Followers of Jesus have advocated this since the days of the plagues and the reformers had to respond to government orders having to do with the plagues. Do you remember, it's hard to remember, do you remember in March of 2020 how afraid we are, we were, we didn't know very much about COVID-19, we didn't know what it was going to do, and most of us, many people were very, very afraid, there was so many unknowns, so we huddled. I remember going to the grocery store and it was like, uh, keep away from me, don't get near me. You know, one of the great things about Christmas time is when you go to the grocery store, everybody, you smile. I'm so happy. Hey, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Good to see you. Yeah. Well, no, COVID time. You don't look at people. You don't want to talk to people. You don't, you, let's get in and get out because I don't want to get this disease. We were frightened. And the government responded swiftly and severely to try to stop the spread. And the problems, though, have come as uh, churches are targeted under certain circumstances or the restrictions last beyond all reason. And lawsuits over this have been filed and have been won by congregations that are uh, uh, defending their religious liberty under those um, commands, those orders from the government that are targeted at churches or last beyond all reason. I confess I have some trepidation as I see some of our brothers and sisters in Canada and Australia and the uh, arrests that have been done uh, because the churches have tried to meet. It's not a simple issue, but I think Matthew 22 would teach us to be generally inclined to those restrictions. What about religious exemptions and mask mandates or religious exemptions and vaccine mandates? 
This passage is not about your boss and about whether or not your boss can require you to get a vaccine, uh, to mandate vaccine for you as an employee. That, we can talk about that some other time. This is about the state. Every Christian ethicist I know says that they wish the federal government or state government would not issue vaccine mandates. Um, <laughs> that was actually the Biden administration's position up until about a month ago. They didn't have the authority or they didn't have, uh, there was no necessity for them to issue any sort of vaccine mandate. And, and technically, I think the one that they proposed even hasn't taken effect quite yet. Uh, what's crucial here is that we have to be careful in thinking about genuine religious liberty claims. When you make a claim of religious liberty, the government has said to do this, I am not going to do it. What you're saying is, I am not going to do it because there are commands of Scripture and this mandate forbids me or prohibits me from obeying this command. There is a, a verse in the Bible, there is a teaching uh, and belief of my faith community that, that if I obey this mandate, I will not be able to obey this command from God. It's important to keep that in mind because many of the objections that people raise are not actually biblical or scriptural per se. They, they fall into some other category. For example, you may say, I don't think the government has the right to tell me to get a vaccine. I may or may not agree with you, but that's a constitutional issue, not a religious liberty issue. And, uh, or you may say, well, I have concerns about the safety and the long-term effects of the vaccine. That is a medical objection, not a religious objection. Even, I know you're responsible to steward your body, but if, if you've had other vaccines in your body, you don't have a religious objection to vaccines. You may have a medical objection, but not a religious objection. Maybe masks make you have anxiety or you're concerned about social development, wearing masks with children. Those are not religious liberty objections. They're personal objections. They're, they're social objections, educational objections, perhaps. In one of the cases in the state of Pennsylvania about mask mandates, I don't think this was, this was a while ago, not over the most recent mask mandates for schools. Uh, one of the judges asked the parents who are objecting to the mask mandates, does your child ever wear a mask to play sports? Does your child ever wear a mask for Halloween? Do they ever wear a mask for, uh, do you ever wear a mask at your house when you're sanding something and you don't want to breathe in the dust? Then you, if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then apparently you don't have religious liberty objections to wearing masks. Now, this is not a popular position that I'm taking at this moment, isn't it? But I want you to be careful. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm encouraging you because I want you to be careful to make the, about making these claims of religious liberty. They should be made carefully because religious liberty is so significant, it must be treated with the respect that it deserves. Uh, there was a um, meeting this week uh, by the, the school, uh, hosted by the school administrators of the Penn Manor District. They invite... Um, once every, well, three or four times a year, they invite all the clergy in the Penn Manor School District to a meeting at the school, and we sit down and talk to the superintendent and some of the staff, and they talk, this is a community relations thing, they talk about what's going on in the school, and, and um, I tell my friends from the pagan state of my birth, and they are shocked that, that they would do this. 
So it's New York. New York is the pagan state of my birth. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, I uh, went to this meeting. They talked about the school budget. They talked about the high school building project. Uh, and of course, we talked about mask mandates and how difficult the year has started with Governor Wolf's, here's my opinion, ill-timed mandates. Um, and one of the things they observed is a couple of those guys, they're followers of Jesus, they're on our team. They, they were discouraged. They have been discouraged through this whole discussion, the public meetings, at the number of people who came. It was not everyone. Not everyone did this. But the number of people who stood up at the meetings and said, we don't wear masks because of Jesus. And then they were vicious, just vicious towards the school board. It wasn't everybody. Clearly, it wasn't everybody. But if you plan to be vicious, don't claim to be a follower of Jesus. And if you talk about being a follower of Jesus, then don't be vicious. Actually, you shouldn't be vicious at all. Why? Because God has a higher claim on your allegiance. That's part of giving to God what is God's. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that these are difficult issues for us to think about and to talk about. Lord, we are tired of them. We're, we're tired of masks and we're tired about arguments and, and, and we're tired of the grief that, that many of our fellow citizens have experienced uh, because of this pandemic that we have endured for these 18 months. Uh, Lord, we are wearied by educational deficits of our children, and we're wearied by um, shortages and economic troubles. Lord, we come before you because, and not only because we're wearied, but because at times we are um, guilty. We are angry and disrespectful sometimes. And the temptation to speak so ill of our fellow citizens is, is strong. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we have dishonored President Biden and Vice President Harris, Governor Wolf. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we speak disrespectfully about former President Trump and Vice President Pence. Lord, we need you to be at work in our minds and hearts that we might be conscious of God and speak uh, and act towards our uh, governmental leaders in, in, in regard for you. Help us. Help us, Lord, th those who, who are themselves being pressed by employers about these mandates and they, they have real objections. Help them to speak them wisely and, and carefully. Bring us out of this pandemic, we pray. May, may uh, Cases are down. We want the whole thing to be far in our rearview mirror, please. And Lord, um, we pray also in anticipation of that great day when the Lord Jesus will return. And there'll be no more sorrow, sickness, no more school board meetings, no more masks, 
It will be a great day when we see Jesus face to face. We pray with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together saying, amen.